Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Welcome back to Real Life, and this is your host, John Christopher, and today I have with me, west of the canal, Sotheby's top producer, Deirdre DeVita. Deirdre, welcome. Hello, John. Welcome to you. Well, thank you very much. It's great having you on the program. Now, I know a lot of people may not be familiar with the term west of the canal in the Hamptons. Could you explain and what that means? Sure, of course. Um, the Hamptons are comprised of three towns, Southampton, East Hampton, and Shelter Island. And the most westerly of the towns is Southampton, which stretches from uh, Eastport, which is way, you know, probably 25 miles east west of the Shinnecock Canal, all the way to Sagaponic. Wow. I know. Southampton is quite large. Hmm? Southampton is quite large. It is large and, uh, and fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. So how do we get to west of the canal, which is really like your bailiwick? Yeah, so so there are you know, probably some names you would recognize, West Hampton, Quag, Hampton Bays, uh, all on, on the west side of the canal. Cool. All right. So now we have an explanation of what that is. You know, the other side of the coin, too, is like a lot of people think that uh, west of the canal is the Hamptons and east uh of the canals the hamptons also but uh you know a lot of it's uh i don't know what's the word i'm looking for not a misnomer but the question is when you say uh, west hampton is that part of the hamptons yes it's within southampton town okay good now we know we, we have a clarification okay so last year was quite challenging would you say yeah it was quite a year <laughs> Glad that's passed, right? So were there any challenges that you faced last year? Yes. Well, I faced what I think many real estate professionals did, which wasn't, you know, a rush of people coming out here looking to rent and then later on to buy, um, which was which was great in a lot of ways because, you know, we were grateful to have business in a time when a lot of people were struggling and grateful to have people out here making our area more vibrant. But the rush was such that it was hard to find accommodation for all these people. And um, the, the status of rentals and sales was changing on a daily basis. So it was, it was a very dynamic situation that left many disappointed. You know, there are still people who want to rent and buy that haven't satisfied that need yet. Right, right. It's, it's, it was uh, now... Was it challenging in the sense like, okay, open houses? How did you uh, approach that? Well, you know, we couldn't do those during the, the lockdown period. But and I have found that open houses still haven't come back to their former glory. You know, um, we can now do that. And, and as of today, we'll be much more free to do those things because we're recording this in June when, the, when most of the restrictions are lifted. Um, but... I think people are, are, are kind of changed their lifestyles and they're still not back in the swing of going to open houses, even brokers. Uh, we used to always caravan around on Thursdays and Fridays and see all the new inventory. And it, and we haven't gotten back into that mode yet. I know. 
Um, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think also a lot of the brokers haven't been out looking at um, new inventory. Yeah. Well, some of us are, you know, we've all been really busy during this past time and probably prioritizing what we need to look at and what we need to do in any given day. There's less of a kind of a cycle of the week this past year. It's been every day has been Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's so true. Um, now, do you see any challenges going forward now that we're over the C-19 hump? Oh, certainly the biggest challenge we face right now is inventory. Uh, we have we have unmet buyer demand, and um, some of these buyers have been through bidding wars and losing out on things because they didn't make an offer soon enough, and um, they're getting weary and discouraged. Right. I've had some uh, buyers say to me that, you know what, maybe I'll just take a, a break and wait for the market to uh, correct. What do you, what kind of advice do you offer them? Yeah, I, I'm hearing that too. And I understand their, you know, their feelings because you put a lot into a search for real estate and, and, you know, it's an exciting thing and your, your heart is in it. So sometimes it takes a while to recover from a disappointment. Um, but I, I'm not confident thinking that prices are going to go down anytime soon. Uh, we've been, you know, wondering about this throughout the, the, the time since the pandemic kicked in. And at first we thought nothing would happen, no one would buy anything, then things spiked up. And I, I see this as not a point on a, a, you know, a point on top of a mountain. I, I think that things are gonna at least plateau for a while because um, of a lot of circumstances. And, and I think that people have changed their lives in response to this experience we've all had. And they've started to recognize that they can live a different way than they did before, which is more, at home, more, um, you know, not necessarily always in the city if that's where they work. Uh, and it's a little bit of a silver lining of, of the situation. Right. Well, you know, the thing I also think too is when you say the city, I think a lot of people didn't realize that they should have a, a backup. They should have a, a yes. something happens in the city, they should be able to go someplace else. I think uh, last year, the onslaught we had with uh, people renting, I mean, I, I had some customers crying, you know, saying that I lost a rental um, because they wanted to vacate the city. Yeah. And um, I think that's changed the, uh, the landscape somewhat. Definitely. I had the same experience. We literally had people calling us from the LIE and saying, I need a rental today. I'm not going back. And for people like that, and these were people in a lot of cases with a big budget, um, they don't ever want to be in that situation again. Right, right. So I, that, that's why I think it's also uh, driving up prices because people want to be here. I mean, it's besides the beauty of the, uh, the area, I mean, now it's, you can't beat it. That's what I think, you know, you have land, whatever, you have sand. Yeah, uh, <laughs> land and sand, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay. So one of the things that's interesting about uh, the area that uh, you specialize in is the uh, the tax uh, the taxes there. In other words, west of the canal, it always seems that uh, certain towns have higher taxes. Um, what towns are they? And or maybe you can just tell us what what are some of the high tax towns and what are some of the low tax towns and why. So, so in the Westerly Hamptons, you have 
different degrees of density in different areas. And, um, and, and you have different uh, property values. So a place with the lowest taxes in the Westerly Hampton is, is certainly Quag. That's a, that's a small hamlet with um, a lot of large stately properties. Uh, a lot of people who own those properties don't use what property tax pays for, for the most part, which is the school system and other you know, local government. So taxes there are very low, and that's part of the reason property values are high. Mm. Um, Remsenburg is like that with low taxes too, and some unincorporated parts of the Westerly Hampton, such as Quayog and West Hampton. Um, when you get a little further east, you have East Quag and Hampton Bays, which are more densely populated. There are more small, smaller uh, parcels with smaller houses upon them. So you have a greater, um, a greater ability to live there, have, have that be like a starter house or um, live there year round. And therefore the, you know, the, the taxes are, are notably higher. Um, because they they're sending more kids to school and they have you know more need for police and fire and that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, so this is this is a way I isolate when I when I have buyers coming out to look at places. You know you can get more house for your money in those hamlets where the taxes are higher, but you're going to be paying more per year to the town. Whereas in the other hamlets, your entry level to buy into the house is higher, but your yearly expense to the town is lower. And I always encourage people to put their money in them into their equity, you know, have that as their objective if they can do it. Right, right, right. Now that's, um, I think one of the attractions and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this is that, um, the close proximity you have to the city. I mean, um, from, from, well, we'll just say, just say from, uh, Quag, you, you're talking to go to East Hampton or to Montauk, maybe an hour, hour, half. Well, Timing depends a lot on the traffic. But that's yeah, that's probably, the other big thing, right? Probably a distance of, you know, 40, 45 miles. Hmm. Um, so that is a big fact. We've always thought that was such a great factor in the Westerly Hamptons. Um, and it, it's obviously been noticed and appreciated in this past year when, when you know, people, people are living out here year round now in rentals or, or places that they own unexpectedly you know they they thought they were going to go back to the city for work and for sending their kids to school and they ended up staying our school systems are you know are are full of people who were not there last year who who already owned property out here so the proximity is 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 a value adder that's a, that's adding hours and hours to your weekend if you're making a lap each week yeah i you know it's it's interesting um i know some people that uh, go from the city to Vermont. And to me, it's like, why, you know, I, it's <laughs> <laughs> I, when you can just come out here and, and, you know, obviously you don't have the snow, but you know, there's other things that, uh, not good here. Yeah, exactly. They're attractive. Um, now, um, houses have gone up price wise dramatically since the pandemic. Um, what, why do you think so? Well, it was definitely, an, uh, an issue of supply and demand. We, you know, we, this is a discretionary market where we on an, in a normal year have a, um, an inventory that does not get absorbed. 
You know, there's always leftover inventory from year to year. There are houses in each price point that are perpetually out there. That didn't happen this past year. And that's, you know, the fact that something, the inventory, for example, that we sell almost 80% of the properties per year in is typically under 1.5 million. It used to be under a million. Right. It has jumped. Go ahead. As John, now if you're looking in that price range, there's very little to be found. So um, that naturally pushes you, if you want to buy something, into a higher point. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting, I had some um, clients that came out looking and they thought for uh, $3 million, they could get themselves something with water um, out here. Now, can you get yourself something west of the canal for $3 million with water? Yes, you can. Yes. Right. Prices, prices in the Westerly Hamptons have, you know, are, are, are a different paradigm than once you get into Southampton and beyond. And that's one of the other good features of, of this area. You get more house for your money. Well, that's, it sounds it right there. Uh, when buyers come to you, do you give them any advice to uh, prepare them for this market? Yes, I have to do that because it's important that buyers recognize that it's a competitive market and they should be prepared to act decisively and quickly if they want to secure something. Um, you know, if they're looking to finance a property, they should be pre-approved for a mortgage. If they see something on the internet that they like, they should come on down and see it and make an offer on it right away. It's, it's, I don't like to put pressure on people arbitrarily, but these are the circumstances now. So it's important that they know how to make it work for them. I know. It, it seems almost like there's the mindset of uh, last year or the year before where, okay, I'll take my time. And it's not the, not the case anymore. Yeah, no. I know a lot of people who have missed out on things because of that mentality, which is understandable because that's the way it's been for so long. Um, but it's not recommended, frankly, in any market. If someone has an interest in something, they should take action on it. Right. Something attracts you to it. I mean, if you're on the internet and it's, it seems to, uh, you know, uh, ring some of the bells that you're looking for, I think, you know, there's somebody else out there that's also thinking the same thing. Yeah. And you really have, you have, I guess people, some, some people want to demure thinking, oh, if I, if I pounce on that, it will indicate interest and I'd rather let it languish a bit and take, you know, take a position then. I understand that point of view. But I've seen that backfire in good markets and bad, you know, meaning in good markets for sellers and bad. Hmm. Uh, it's never safe bet that someone else isn't going to want that property. And if you if you if you're interested, you should make an offer. Absolutely. You don't. Have, you don't, might not get the deal you want. That's fine. But if you don't make an offer, you, you risk losing it. Exactly. Now, what do you tell sellers who think that this is a good time to sell and they want to put their house on the market at a premium? Well. I tell them that, you know, current market values are a significant premium over those of a year and a half ago, and they should still price in the way that we recommend, which is at the sweet spot where it will attract attention and momentum. When this is happening, you know, we've seen a lot of bidding competition on houses that are priced right. doesn't matter the, 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 the range, the category, um, although it's harder, it is harder the higher you go to you know, there, there are less buyers in the pool at 10 million than there are at one. Right, right. Uh, but, but they have to recognize that the prices that we're quoting now are reflecting 
uh, in some cases, a 30, 40% uptick from the year and a half ago. And that is a premium in and of itself. So they should, they should focus on capitalizing on that rather than being overly ambitious. How can someone get in touch with you, Deidre? If they have any questions, you have any questions. Yes, well, they can they can email me at deirdre.devita at sotheby's.realty or find on, on the Sotheby's International Realty website. You, you can find me. Great. Deirdre, it's so much a pleasure to having you on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life. We're broadcasting here in Southampton on the only NPR station at WLIW 88.3. In the meantime, we'll be right back after this short break with attorney at law, Andrew Lieb. Hi, this is John Christopher for Real Life and welcome back. Today I have as my guest, Andrew Lieb of Lieb at Law, and I thought we'd talk about 1031s. What do you think, Andrew? Do you have any knowledge about 1031s? Sure, why not? I, I like 1031s. Um, and let me just start off with what it is, because, you know, That's the question you and I in the industry <laughs> talk about it, people are like, who? And I don't want to lose them. It's a way to defer capital gains on investment property. So what that means is that you buy property, you sell it, and there's a gain there. And normally you'd be taxed, but it's a way around that to keep deferring and put off the tax, which is a real important thing. Yep. But there's something I understand the uh, Biden administration is talking about eliminating 1031s. But before, uh, so that's, what do you think about that? Is uh well, first of all, I don't think they're trying to eliminate them. The proposal is to make it for 1031s would gain over $500,000 would be eliminated. So just to clarify the proposal, and I actually spent a long time going over this with a 1031 exchange expert this week. His name's Mike Brady. He runs Madison, which is a qualified intermediary. And Mike and I had a long dialogue about this. Because, you know, John, one of the best things about being educated is knowing how many things you don't know about that you need to go to the expert. So I went to Mike and I said, Mike, you're smarter than me. And he said to me, you know what? And he's right about this. Joe Manchin said that he's not going to support reconciliation with respect to this new plan for the $1.8 trillion for the what we're calling, I think, infrastructure plan. It has a different name, obviously. Right. And so without Manchin doing reconciliation, there's not enough votes and there's going to be other people that say no. So there's going to have to be a compromise along the way or it's not going to happen. OK, so let me ask you, what is the overall tax strategy of a 1031? I mean, yeah, let's break that down to start off with again. So let's assume that you play Monopoly. You like Monopoly, John? Absolutely. It's one of my favorite games, although. Oh, I have to tell you, my seven-year-old. I like to buy. I like to buy Park Place all the time. Well, that's what my seven-year-old does, and I keep <laughs> landing on it. And he's smart. He doesn't just get the hotels. He trades up. I mean, he doesn't just get the houses. He trades up for the hotels. And the tax on Park Place is outrageous. And that <laughs> explains the ten thirty-one. Well, let me explain. When you have a house, you want to get a house to rent out a house, a nice house in Stag Harbor on the water. You rent it out, and you're doing well. So you get a second house and you're doing well and you get a third house and you're doing well. And then you say, 
the friction cost of dealing with these three houses is very exhausting. What I'd really like to do is consolidate them into one nicer house to rent it out. And a 1031 allows you to do that because what the 1031 lets you do is take the appreciation in all of those properties and put all your equity together and buy yet another property without paying tax on capital gains along the way. Without the 1031 exchange, let's assume your first house you bought for a million, now it's two million. The second house was a million, now it's two million. The third house was a million, now it's two million. Let's assume you have these houses. You have $3 million in gain, if you listen to the story. Right. You're going to have to be paying percentage in the 20s, probably. 20, it's 23.8 and then some other jazz. But And they're talking about raising that tax rate, too. But right. you're going to have to be paying in that range of when you sell it to buy. So what you'd be doing is you wouldn't be buying a new place at $6 million, which is your current valuation. You'd end up be buying a new place in the fours or five because you have so much of tax along the way. What the 1031 lets you do is stay at your position of 6 million and consolidate them, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. So awesome. let me, yeah, um, but what, are there any potential pitfalls? Like for example, like you were just saying, having a vacation home, uh, is there anything like you, there are certain guidelines, right? You can't stay in the, in the property or use the property for a certain amount of time. You're absolutely right. And the IRS actually has an uh, opinion about this that you'd be well versed to read if you're going to be dealing with vacation homes. Because if you remember, what did I tell you in uh, 1031 exchange was to start off with? It was for an investment property. Now, if you're living in the home, your vacation home, I always have this fight with people, John, um, particularly in my family. And they, I don't know if you know these people. They go, I want to buy a house in Vermont to rent out, and I'm going to use it. Do you think it's a good investment? And I would say back to them, if you're using it, it's no longer an investment. It's a luxury. Mm. And even if you're offsetting that luxury by renting it some of the time, it's no longer an investment. And what the IRS put out is a safe harbor for rental homes that basically says you can't use it for more than a week. And it's very limited. Yes. And so, so I thought it was two weeks. It's it's a yeah. week. So they have this safe harbor and they make it huh. very, it's a percentage. So it's a percentage. They have two different tracks to go forward on it. Let me see if I could get it for you. Safe Harbor 1031, um, rental vacation. I've put out some stuff about this before. And let's see if I can give you the actual thing so you can find it out. Here we go while we're looking in 1031 guidance from the department, I mean, from IRS. Here we're going, blah, 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 blah. Yes, it's 15 days or 10% on the number of days during the year for which the dwelling is rented. Hmm. You see how they have the two different things. 10%. And, yeah. and so it's, it's, a, it's an issue and it's the... It's the greater of that you could use. So yes, you could use the 15 days or as we're talking about, but that's not the point. The point is that once you start saying, hey, it's a vacation home, your odds of being able to do this is going to be a problem, John. I think that the real key is- You mean if you get audited is, by, by the IRS? I mean that a 1031 exchange is really um, about 
multiple things. I actually asked Mike Brady about this. We were asking the other day about it. They look at multiple things. And we were talking about the difference between income and capital gains. And he said to me that we were talking about flippers, actually, in a different conversation. And he said, when your business is to flip, you're not holding this asset for a capital gain. So it goes into a lot of factors. I'd recommend that people read out the safe harbor issued by the IRS. I think it's from um, 2008. It's IRS Revenue Procedure 2008-16. And it has some information about this. Um, and it tells you about when it's going to be treated, when it's not going to be treated. But back to your beginning story. I always say when you're dealing with the IRS, don't get cute. Because it could come back and it can be a big problem. And the way I do with everything, even when I'm representing sellers and buyers, is I say, I'm going to call up a qualified intermediary. Do you know what that is? No. That's the person that facilitates the 1031. Did you know that if an attorney facilitates it, they can't be an attorney for the party? It has to be an independent company called a QI. And I get the QI on the phone well before the deal happens. And I say, I usually talk to Mike Brady and I say, Tell me what to do. And we figure this thing out because I don't like to ask for forgiveness. I like to ask for permission when we're talking about big numbers that can really change someone's structure. Fascinating. Okay. Let's talk about a more mellow topic, marijuana. As ah. a, <laughs> you like that, right? As well, a, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, um, it's not mellow anymore with the amount of money that's being made. I think I saw on the North Fork, what was it, $43 million for a transaction or something like that for one of these cultivators that want to get into expand their business. Like there's nothing mellow about $43 million in my mind. Well, you know, this is exactly what I want to talk about, you know, because uh, it became legal March 31st of this year, right? In New York State. Well, that's such an interesting question. Um, it became legal, but there's a lot of regulations that have not been promulgated. So, for example, when it comes to growing your own marijuana, they haven't even put out the regulations about the rules for that yet. So just so we're on the same page, there's two main sources of law. One is a statute, which is what you're referring to, which is out there. The second one's a regulation. I want you to think about a statute like the board of directors and a regulation like the officers of a company. So we have this great idea from the statute that says, yeah, we're gonna legalize marijuana recreationally in New York state, but hold tight, the rule book's still coming. So that's how it operates. Well, the, the, the thing I'm getting to is that, um, the, the real question is, do you think with all the vineyards here in the Hamptons and the North Fork, is that all gonna go up in smoke? Ah, I like the way you said that. That was good. I, I would think that if the crop went up in smoke, they'd be very, very sad. But I get your point. Um, I will tell you that I'm getting calls for clients already, both people that operate big tracts of land on the North Fork and people that are looking to buy them. I refer them to a broker every time. But the real issue is that there's all these different licensing that is in the statute. One is for cultivating. One is for distributing. There's even a license for if you're going to do like an Uber service for it. There's a license if you're going to have like greenhouses. There are different licenses. And John, a lot of the licenses say that you can't have more than one license. So that's a big predicament and restriction of what's going to happen. And I'm going to give you another answer to your question. 
a vast majority of these licenses are supposed to be given to people that are in underserved communities and people that are adversely impacted by marijuana laws, which is problematic because I've read this new statute at least five times so far, and I'm an attorney and I have a lot of questions. So the amount of the legal budget you're going to need to do one of these things is off the chart. So your question is- I don't mean to interrupt you, but but, um, we're going to have to come back another time and continue this conversation because if somebody has questions, it's up in smoke. If if somebody has uh, questions regarding this or any other kind of legal questions, how would they uh, get in touch with you? If someone wants to get in touch with me, just give me a ring at 631-878-4455. Or you can always just call my friend, John, because we like to work together. Excellent. Excellent. Andrew, as always, it's it's such a delight having you on the program. This is John Christopher of uh, Real Life Broadcasting out of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3. Thank you for listening. And remember, have an awesome journey. You have been listening to Real Life the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio.